2 Samuel chapter 21, it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. Literally in the Hebrew it says, David sought God's face. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. Because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the the remnant of the Amorites. Technically, they were the remnant of a group of people called the Hivites. But they were called Amorites broadly and collectively as a part of the Canaanite nation. It would be like if we said um, that you're a Coloradan. And somebody else said, you were an American. And you said, well, how can you be both? I'm an American who lives in Colorado. And so that's how that works. So the children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? He means the Israel. The Israeli people. And the Gibeonites said to him, We shall have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them for before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together, and were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on from heaven, and she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who'd stolen them from the streets of Bet-Shin, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul and Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer of the land when the Philistines were at war 
again with Israel. David and his servants with him, with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elchanan, the son of Jer, or Edgim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Some of the parts of the Bible that were written were not written in what you and I would call chronological order. And so sometimes when we read the Bible, we lose a sense of time. And we lose the sense of time because we're used to something having a beginning and a middle and an end. In the last four chapters, they were set between the uprising of Sheba and Adonijah's attempt to wrest power from the throne of David. And again, you can see that in 1 Kings chapter uh, 1 and also... um, When you're looking at the chronology, we don't necessarily know when this particular event is taking place, if it's taking place in real time or in the real chronology. But in this particular portion of the scripture, they insert the story about the Gibeonites. And you might rightfully ask yourself, what is this? Why is this story here? And there's a reason. As you can tell from the text already, that there was a famine in the land. And when people read the Bible, they struggle with the idea of a supernatural God visiting natural consequences for specific sins. And so part of the point that the Bible is making is that David has come to a place in his ministry and in his kingdom where he is aware of and submitted to hearing from God. Now again, when you read about the idea of a supernatural God visiting natural consequences for specific sins, even this idea of blood guiltness seems strange and anachronistic. Anachronistic means out of place and out of time. It would be like if you found a pair of glasses in the 6th century BC and you go, hey, these glasses weren't invented for a thousand years later. What is this? Why is this happening? Well, again, here is the reality. There is a God and God does intervene in the lives of people and nations. David asks God why Israel is being punished by a famine and the Lord tells him because there's blood 
on the nation's hands. That Saul had attempted to wipe out the Gibeonites. And for us, it's difficult because this expedition that that Saul had involved himself in isn't recorded in the Bible. And so we don't have a great deal of details. All we have is the details in front of us. So the chapter itself outlines a problem in verses 1 and 2, and then a plan in verses 3 through 9. And then it talks about a protective mother in verses 10 through 14. And so part of the point that I'm going to do with you is help you understand in part the meaning of the chapter and then apply it to our lives. That means that the vast majority of our study tonight is going to be in verses 1 and 2. And so what's going to happen is you're going to come to a place and go, wait a minute, we're not going to have time to have communion. Yes, we will have time to have communion. I am going to get you through this chapter, but you're going to have to be patient. Now remember, part of the point is the past is catching up with the nation. David is towards the end of his life in his ministry. But there's unfinished business. And in that unfinished business, God has allowed a famine in the land to awaken David and the people about past injustices. And that's the key concept. God has allowed this famine in the land to awaken David and the people about past injustice and the failure to keep promises and to honor God. And what does that mean for you and for me? Sometimes the Lord will allow certain things to happen in our lives. And there isn't necessarily a direct correlation between something that has happened in the past and is happening in the present. But sometimes there is a correlation. So how do you tell the difference? That's in part what we're going to talk about. Look at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three, count them, three years, year after year, And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered. It's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house. There's blood on his hands. Because he killed the Gibeonites. Now, famines were common in the Middle East. The Bible speaks of famines during the time of Abraham and Jacob. You'll remember it was a famine that drove the children of Israel out of the promised land, if you will, to go back to Egypt. And it was in Egypt that... Joseph had been taken captive and imprisoned and that God created a mechanism so that the family could be saved and the nation could be saved. And then they languished for 400 years in Egypt until they were finally delivered by Moses. Pagan societies didn't take famines for granted. In pagan culture, they always saw it as a form of divine judgment or at least discipline. Even Ahab knew that famine in his time was a judgment by God, a God that he didn't want to know or a God that he didn't want to obey, but he knew that God was at work. Now, David is both king and shepherd, and so he has this spiritual obligation to discover what's wrong in his kingdom. And so David will make inquiry of the Lord. But one of the things that I want to point out to you right away is that David in the first year or even in the second year, doesn't necessarily attribute this to something that the nation has done or even that he has done. But he does 
seek the Lord. And as he seeks the Lord, he begins to understand. Now, again, we're not told exactly how he sought the Lord. Did the Lord speak to him in direct revelation? We know that David had had, spoke, had received revelation from the Lord in the past. Did he go to Abiathar and Zadok, the priest? Did they consult the Urim and the Thummim? Again, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how the Lord communicated his instructions. But remember, in order to find out the problem, David doesn't blame global warming. He doesn't blame El Nino. He doesn't blame La Nina. He goes to El Senor. The Lord. He doesn't seek scientists or soothsayers, unlike the pagan princes. In other words, he comes to that place where he goes, something is happening and I need to know the mind of God in the circumstance that I face. Is that what you do, by the way? Is that what you do when there is a prolonged pain when there is something inside of your heart or in your life that just continually and prolifically doesn't go right, do you seek the Lord? And now, by the way, God will reveal the problem. And that's exactly what he does for David. Here's your problem, the Lord says. Saul tried to exterminate the Gibeonites. Now again, we're not told when this happened or why it happened or what motivated it to happen. But we do know that a treaty existed between the people of God and the Gibeonites. Some of you who have read your Bible are familiar with the story that takes place in Joshua chapter 9. Basically, remember that when the children of Israel are occupying the land, they run across a group of people with their head disheveled, their, their clothes are dirty, their, their sandals are well-worn, and they said, hey, we're a people who live far, far away, and we've heard about you, and we've heard about the God of the Bible and all of this stuff, and we don't want any trouble at all. So rather than face extermination, we thought that we would come to you and make provision for you and make a deal with you so that you won't hurt us. And so Joshua entered into a treaty under deception. And Saul may have thought, this treaty was made 400 years ago under deception. There's got to be a statute of limitations. But guess what? There was no statute of limitations. God expected Israel to honor the treaty and to honor the obligations even if it was entered into falsely under deceptive circumstances. So what does that mean for you? Well, let's be blunt. What do you think the answer to this question is? Do you think God expects you to keep your promises? That's pretty simple, isn't it? Is it realistic for God to expect you to keep your promises, to keep your vow, to honor your obligations? Well, she tricked me into marrying her. See, you're laughing. You're laughing. 
Not simply because it's funny, but because there's probably been circumstances in your life where you thought you were hoodwinked, where you thought that you were unfairly taken advantage of, that you made promises and obligations and that you thought that they were made under honorable circumstances when in fact they were not made under honorable circumstances. But this becomes the point. When you make a promise, keep your promise. When you enter into a covenant, keep the covenant. If you enter into an obligation, honor the obligation. Now this should be something so simple. But here's the upside of it. If God thinks keeping your promise promise, honoring the obligation, keeping the covenant, if he thinks it's that important for you to do it, what do you think he thinks about himself keeping his promises, obligations, and covenants? Do you realize that the book of Revelation talks about the throne of God and that over the throne of God there is a rainbow, an emerald rainbow? And and the Bible seems to indicate it's there to remind God that he's made promises and covenants and obligations. By the way, do you think that God needs some sort of cosmic rainbow that he needs to wrap around his finger to remind him, oh yeah, I made a promise, and oh, oh yeah, there's that green rainbow wrapped around my finger. I guess I'll keep my promise. Does God need a rainbow to remind him that he needs to keep his promises? No. But he establishes it. Not for his benefit, but for your benefit. There's constant reminders all around you. The constant reminders are, I love you, I've made a promise to you, and I will keep my promise to you. So, what if the promise isn't in writing? What if no one really heard it and you never wrote it down? Jesus said to the people in the New Testament, Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Philip Keller writes, We are to be judged in full measure by the verbal commitments we make to one another. If the answer is yes, say yes. If the answer is no, say no. And how sad it is that Christians are often the most guilty of not keeping their obligations, either to their family or to their business or to the church or to their nation. And I suspect that almost every treaty we've ever made particular to our Native American population, has never been kept. It's always been broken. Now, clearly, we as a nation do not have a perfect record. But let me be very clear here. We as a nation have done more to advance good than any other nation in the history of humanity. No one has been as generous with their enemies as America has been. No one has been as gracious. No one has been as kind. No one has been as as generous. But here's the deal. We still have a record of broken promises. And in the Old Testament, keeping your promise was highly honored, deeply felt, keenly understood. Even in the old American West, when a cowboy is heard saying, I gave him my word. What does that mean? It's as good as gold. The moment he said, I gave him my word. That means I will honor my word. Even if it's not in my best interest. Even if it means that I'm going to have to suffer. And this becomes yet another important point. How are you at keeping your word? 
When you say you'll do something, do you do it? A.W. Pink writes, Troubles do not come haphazard. The poor worldling may talk of his bad luck and ill fortune, but the believer ought to employ more God-honoring language. He should know that it is his father who orders all of his circumstances and regulates every detail of his life. Therefore, when famine comes upon him, be it spiritual or financial, it is both a privilege and a duty to seek the Lord and say, show me wherefore thou contendest with me. He's quoting Job chapter 10 verse 2. And in modern language, which that means you seek the Lord and you say, hey, is there something I need to know? Is there something that I need to know? And then Pink writes, when the smile of God is withdrawn from us, we should at once suspect something is wrong. True, his favor isn't measured by his material benefits. And true, also, his withholding of them doesn't always indicate his displeasure. No, he may be testing faith, developing patience, or preparing for an enlarged trust. Is it as simple as, you did this and now this is going to happen? No, it's not that simple. Does God punish people for sins of past generations? Clearly, There's an element of truth to that. And some of you might be reading this and think, hey, I thought I read the Bible where it says that the sins of the father will not be exacted on the children. And you would be right. So then why does Saul's offspring have to die for Saul's sin? Hey, guess what? Because sometimes parents bring with them A curse. Now, how is the curse broken? This is what the Bible says in the New Testament. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. In Romans 8, 1, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. That means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes committed for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some scholars who doubt the inspiration of the scripture or the motives of David or even the character of God have suggested the whole story was made up so David could take vengeance on his enemies. But I got to tell you, that's not what's happening in this text. The text is clear. The famine existed in part to awaken the country and David to deal with something that they refused to deal with. And sometimes God will do exactly that in your life. A famine meant no rain. And no rain meant no crop. And no crop meant no food. And and was the famine due to some transgression, some sin on the part of the people? Again, the text doesn't say so. The people may have assumed that there was a direct link between God and the weather. It may be that they cooperated with Saul or even enjoyed the benefits of whatever it was that Saul did. We're not told. Some people believe that every illness, every tragedy is somehow associated with a specific sin. But Jesus taught us that that was untrue. In John chapter 9, you you all know the story about this man who was born blind. And you'll remember the story how the disciples of Jesus came to Jesus and they said to him, Who sinned, his parents or him, that this should happen to him? Warren Wiersbe actually calls John chapter 9, the blind man calls their bluff. I love that title of the chapter. 
And Jesus responds and he goes, no, neither this man nor his parents, but, the, but that the works of God should be revealed. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And the night is coming when no one can work. Jesus basically says, no, this wasn't because of some sin of the father or even the, some, some sin of this particular person. I did this in order to glorify God. And you've got to understand something. The people turned to David for answers. And when the people turned to David for answers, where does David turn for answers? To the Lord. When you least expect it, people will turn to you for answers. And they'll say, why has this happened? Why did my baby die? Why did my husband leave me? Why have I lost my job? Why is this happening? Explain to me why this is happening. Help me understand why this is happening. And the right answer might be, I have no idea why this is happening. And I don't, I don't have the wisdom of God, and I certainly don't have the mind of God that I can know all that God has planned for you and purposed for you and desired for you. When Joseph was placed in a prison, did God reveal to him, hey, you know what, I'm sticking you in this prison, even though you may not understand it right now, I'm going to place you in prison because you're going to receive a revelation and I'm going to use you as the instrument of salvation, not simply to save your own family, but to save an entire nation of people from extinction. Did God tell Joseph that? No. Was there a moment when it was re revealed to Joseph? Yeah, remember what Joseph says to his own brothers as they're weeping and crying as they realize his true identity? And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God's used for good. And even though your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your boss, your government might have done something to you. <laughs> and they weren't exactly motivated by right thinking. You have a God who's in charge of your life. As a matter of fact, one Bible writer says, the first and second year he might look upon it as a punishment laid upon them for the common sins of the Lord, but when he saw it continuing a third year, he thought there was something in it more than ordinary, and therefore, although he well knew the natural cause to be drought, yet he inquired after the supernatural, as wise men do, and guess what? The Lord revealed it. Saul's crime, he broke an ancient oath. And he practiced genocide. David Gusick notes these important principles on this passage. He says, number one, God expects us to keep our promises. That's pretty evident, isn't it? Number two, God expects nations to keep their promises. Today in the news, wonderfully, the President of the United States talked about our friendship and our enduring commitment to Israel. I pray he means it. I pray he means it. 
Because again, when you enter into an obligation and a responsibility, when you covenant with nations, make no mistake about it, God doesn't just simply dismiss those things. And by the way, here's the third thing. Time does not diminish our obligation to our promises. Wow, I made that promise a long time ago. Doesn't matter. And by the way, here's the other principle. God's correction may come a long time after the offense. You might be thinking, whew, I dodged a bullet. But make no mistake about it. God is not mocked. What a person sows that they will also reap. Now we get to move on to verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Remember I told you that they were technically Hivites, but they're called Amorites as this larger nation of Canaanite people. And so the most important thing for you and for me isn't simply that they were outsiders, but that David takes the first step towards reconciliation. When he hears from God and he knows that an injustice has been perpetrated, he takes the step to make it right. That's the idea. And Saul, like I said, may have thought that the agreement was past the statute of limitations. He was doing Israel a favor. These people were a drain. But in his misguided zeal and even good intentions, he was wrong. By the way, is good intentions a reasonable excuse for bad behavior? Has anyone ever said to you, I meant well? Well, and again, I appreciate the fact that yours wasn't a malicious hatred, a deep-seated resentment. But even if you mean well, and it's going to have bad results, beware. Because of what Saul did to them, David allows them to define the terms of what constitutes a just and fair settlement. And so when he asks them... In verse 3, David says to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? If you're unfamiliar with Joshua chapter 9, you won't understand this statement. Because in Joshua chapter 9, when Joshua enters into the agreement, the Gibeonites are forced to participate in the role of slaves and servants. And you would think at this point that the Gibeonites would say, we want our freedom. We want our freedom. But that's not what's asked for. And I think that that's interesting. Um, This is important. David allows them to define the terms of what constitutes a just and fair settlement, and they begin with saying nothing. And I think that the reason why they begin with saying nothing is because they're deeply suspicious, because one of the Israeli people have already tried to exterminate them. And by the way, if someone tries to kill you and everyone in your family, and then someone else comes and says, hey, what do we have to do to make that right? Do you, are you automatically going, oh, finally, these people have come around? 
Or is there a sense of doubt and suspicion and maybe even fear and trepidation? But when David makes the extra effort, when David says, no, what shall I do to make atonement? And look what it says at the end of verse 3, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. That may not mean a whole lot to you. But David believed that if the Gibeonites would bless Israel, then the reconciliation would be complete and God's discipline of Israel would end. David believed that if he could convince these people to somehow find it in their heart to extend forgiveness and reconcile the wrong, that there would be hope. But look what happens. They don't ask for money. The Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house. So number one, they didn't ask for their freedom. Number two, they don't ask for reparations. And number three, they don't ask for a slaughter of the people of Israel. They basically say, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. In verse 5, then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose... And the king said, I will give. Them doesn't actually appear in the original text, but that's the implication. So what are we to make of all of this? How are we to think about this? This purely pagan race of Canaanite people who aren't necessarily under the obligations and covenants of the children of Israel. But they've been there for 400 years. And guess what happened in that 400 years? They read the Bible. And in Numbers chapter 35, verse 29, and if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there because I'm going to quote a little bit at length from Numbers chapter 35, verse 29. It says, And these things shall be the statute of judgment to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person... The murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. In other words, he can't buy his way out of the situation. Look, if I give you $100, will you just pretend like it never happened? If I give you $1,000, will you pretend like it never happened? If I give you a million dollars, will you pretend like it never happened? No. But he shall surely be put to death. Well, what if he has $100 million and he gives it to the government? Can you buy your way out of justice? And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell on the land before the death of the priest. 
so you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land, for the land that is for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. The Gibeonites are basically saying he has engaged in awful bloodletting. You see, the Gibeonites don't ask for money. They don't ask for recompense. They don't ask for freedom. And David understands their claim and grants their claim. And the sons are going to be ritually executed and their bodies are going to be exposed and left unburied. Do you want to know why? Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, part of the challenge that we have as Christians reading this text is to understand at least two things. Number one, we don't know every detail of the incident. And number two, remembering Abraham's words. Do you remember when Sodom and Gomorrah was being visited by angelic beings and Abraham began to plead for the life of his nephew and he says to the Lord, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Here's my question to you. Will God do what's right? What do you think the answer is? Is God just? Is God fair? And see, you may not understand his justice, and you may not understand his equity, and you may not understand his fairness. In the New Testament, Paul argues with the person who says, hey, it's not fair that Adam and Eve sin and everyone has to die and go to hell. Hey, on the surface, it doesn't seem fair, does it? How come billions of people have to go to hell because of the transgression of one set of parents? But Paul argues, hey, guess what? Because it's true, let's look at the bright side. Because of the transgression of one, all perish. Because of the righteousness of one, all can have life. What? Yeah, what you seem as a disadvantage, an unjust and unfair treatment, God is going to work in such a way that each and every one of you can be saved. How many of you deserve to go to heaven? Oh, good. You're well taught. You're well taught. How many of you deserve to go to hell? Yeah, all of us. All of us deserve to go to hell. How many of us have to go to hell? None of us. How many of us have the opportunity to go to heaven? All of us. All of us. All of us. Because of Jesus. And that's the idea. That even though we don't necessarily understand it, there's going to be a picture of what this is all about. And in verse 7 it says, 
But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, remember? He's that picture of grace, seated at the king's table, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between him, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. In other words, even as David goes to honor the oath in order to try and make recompense and set things right, he does so not at the expense of promises he himself has made. And that becomes an important point as well. That when we go about honoring God and we, when we go about trying to make something that is terribly wrong right, that we not disobey God or, or not honor the promises that we've already made. And it says in verse 8, so the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth who happened to be named after his uncle, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul. Now, the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, is who? This is his first wife. This is his first wife who uh, basically bailed on him, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite, and he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And again, some scholars say, yeah, right. It just so happens that he picks the offspring of his much-hated ex-wife. And they hang them on the hill before the Lord. And by the way, the method of death is important to understand the text. Remember what I already alluded to in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. He who is hanged is accursed of the Lord. These descendants of Saul bore the curse that Saul deserved. And because they bore the curse that Saul deserved and so delivered Israel from the guilt of their sin against the Gibeonites. That's the key concept. The promise from Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 explains why Jesus died the way that he did. Remember in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Here's what the Bible is teaching. That the exact punishment that the law requires... does not have to take effect because Jesus has died for you. Your wickedness, your sin, your transgressions, your dishonoring of God, your disobeying of God, your rebellion against God. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember, in the law, you deserve to die. According to the law, you should go to hell. According to the law, if you offend in one area of the law, you've broken the entire law. But Jesus keeps the entire law. And he hangs on a tree. And then look what it says. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged him. Now, again, some scholars go so far as to think that he didn't just hang them by the neck until they were dead. But that somehow they engaged in some primitive form of execution by nailing them to a tree. Whether or not that's true, we have no way of knowing. It says in verse 10, 
So they fell, all seven together. Verse 9, they were put to death in the days of the harvest, in the first days in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now verse 10, now Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. This is a woman who is the mother of two of the seven who are executed. She holds a vigil. And the coming of the rain, she holds a vigil over the dead bodies, not just of her children, but of all of the people who are present. And she stays there until the coming of the rain. And you have to understand what the meaning of this is in the text. The coming of the rain means the famine is over. Justice is satisfied. Israel is delivered. She watches as, the, as it begins to rain. And her faithfulness so moves David that he takes the bodies and he gives them a decent burial. As a matter of fact, Philip Keller intimates, he says, In a vigil of love, Rizpah kept the vultures and scavengers from feeding on the dead and decomposing bodies of her loved ones. Remember, they're executed. They're under a curse. They are unavailable for burial. She spreads a blanket near the place where her sons hanged on the tree. The vigil of love so impresses David that he orders the bones of Saul and Jonathan and the rest of the bodies to be kept in the mausoleum of Kish, who is the father of Saul. And so they go from criminal to royal burial. And the Lord makes it clear that if we want to enjoy the physical and moral and spiritual blessings of God, that we obey him. But again, this act of devotion and this act of love stirs his heart. And then it says, and David was told of that, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul. Then David, he takes the bones of Jonathan, the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the street of Bethshin. Those of you who are unfamiliar, remember they fell on Mount Gilboa. They were executed and mutilated. Their bodies were tacked to the wall. The, 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 uh, the freedom fighters of Jabesh Gilead literally stole into the night, untacked them from the wall, and then burned their bodies and took their bones where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck them down. So he brought up the bones of Saul, the bones of Jonathan, and they were gathered of those who had been hanged in verse 14. Then they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish. It's really a royal burial. And then finally... We see the unfinished fighting in the land in verse 15. And the passage basically speaks of a battle fought against the family of Goliath. There's three battles. And so it begins in verse 15 and he says, Then the Philistines were at war with Israel. David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines. And David grew faint. David grows weary. As a matter of fact, the NIV translates the word faint, exhausted. And no wonder. Let's just think about this. David is somebody's grandpa. He's old. He has gone through life. And his life is starting to catch up with him. But guess what? The battle against our flesh goes on no matter how young we are or how old we are. And if this passage teaches us anything, it's that the battle belongs to the Lord. But there's a fight that we all have to fight. And that is the constant demands 
of the flesh. Even when we conquer a major sin like Goliath, he seems to have brothers or sons ready to pounce on us. So we never get to retire from the fight of faith. We have to fight the good fight. We persevere to the end. So David is old. He's a little weak, but he continues to fight. But again, there's an immediate lesson. Even when you're old, you fight. But even when you're old and you fight, there might be people who can come alongside to help you. And that's exactly what happens with David. We persevere. David is old, but he continues to fight, and he's going to get help in the battle. And one of the interesting applications of this passage is that big giants (laughs) can show up even at the end of your life. Some of you are looking back on the giant that you slew when you were younger. But make no mistake about it. Sometimes we have challenges in our twilight years. Sometimes we find challenges and sometimes our greatest enemies are kept for last. But guess what? According to the New Testament, we're more than conquerors through David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another application that those who began the fight and continue the fight have earned the right to be remembered. As a matter of fact, it says... Then Ishbi, Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, he's talking about Goliath, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought, hey, I can take this guy, David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, you shall not go anymore with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Let me tell you what the lamp of Israel is. What does a lamp do? Provides light provides light. Here's what they're saying. You provide us with guidance and leadership and light. We need to hear from God. We need sometimes for you to hear from God on our behalf. And so we can't afford to lose you. So in that sense, David is the lamp that lights the way. And remember, Christians aren't to quench the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit inside of us that lights the way, huh? How can you possibly hear from God if you quench the Holy Spirit of God? How can you possibly expect to hear from God if you keep your Bible closed? How can you possibly expect to hear from God if you never pray or rarely pray? And so... The men felt David symbolized their contact with God. And without David, they would be leaderless in the darkness without light. And by the way, it becomes, again, a picture of our culture. We long for leaders. Perhaps you yourself have said, hey, where are the leaders? Where are the people who are going to lead the next generation? In the popular culture, in the popular media, in the sports establishment. People look at the Tiger Woods of the world and the Al Gores of the world and the Ted Haggarts of the world. And when you become a popular figure, expectations run high. But even when a leader has been proven effective, we don't always seek to shield that leader from the sons of giants. We look for reasons to tear them down instead of build them up. We look for flaws and then we look to put them away. 
But guess what? They fight. They're mentioned three. Sibikei, Elhanan, Jonathan. <laughs> now it happened afterward that there was a battle between the Philistines at Gob. Sibikei killed Sath, who was one of the sons of the giant. And then Elhanan, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath. And, and that's the point. Sibikei, Elhanan, Jonathan. These men accomplished heroic deeds when David was finished fighting giants. Now this was a, what I think is the most important part of the, of the chapter. And I'm sure that there's much more things and much more application. But I think that the idea is God continues to raise up leaders when the leaders of the previous generations are passing from the scene. And David killed a giant. And then the men that David mentors and leads, they kill giants as well. You see, David's legacy is not only in what he accomplished, but what he left behind. People prepared for victory. And so the most important thing that you can do isn't simply to be faithful to God, although that is really important. There's another reason why you need to be faithful to God. Because of your brothers and your sisters and because of your children and because of your grandchildren. David's legacy isn't just simply what he did right, but was to provide an example for others to do what's right. And David's triumphs were meaningful, not only for himself, but for others. And that's what it says at the end of the chapter. Look what it says. Fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Did David kill all those people? No. But they were just simply replaying what they had seen in David's life. And you know what is one of the most important things about your private victory? It becomes a public acknowledgement of the faithfulness of God. And it serves as a model for your children and their children. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to honor God in my marriage. I'm going to honor God at work. I'm going to honor God in the life that he's given to me. G. Campbell Morgan writes, Let those who after long service find themselves waning in strength be content to abide with the people of God, still shining like a lamp, and so enabling them to carry on the divine enterprise. Such action in the last days of life is also great and high service. Guess what? When you're old... You can still model faithfulness. When you're old, you can still model the goodness, the graciousness, the mercy, and the love of God. We're going to have communion in just a few minutes, and here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to hold the communion elements until we all have a chance to partake together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, there are things difficult to understand sometimes in the scripture. But Lord, we pray that we would begin on those issues of what we don't know or that are unclear and obscure from what we do know to be very clear. And that is that sin exacts a price. And that judgment, <laughs> judgment is preceded by grace. 
And Lord, we know that each and every one of us deserve to die and we deserve to go to hell and we, we deserve to experience the full wrath of the consequences of not only our father's disobedience, but our own disobedience. But because of David's son, because of David's son, because David's son hung on a tree, we avoid the curse and we get to experience redemption. Lord, if we only experience the just consequences of our own wicked behavior in this life, it would be fair. But Lord, we thank you that you've dealt with us not according to our sin or rewarded us according to our iniquity, but you've lavished mercy and love. Lord, you've given us freedom, the freedom to love you and know you. You've given us forgiveness of sin. You've given us a home in heaven. You've given us a permanent place with you forever. All of this because of David's son. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you and we praise you that we're not getting what we deserve, but we're getting mercy, an abundance of mercy, mercy that's overflowing. Lord, we pray that we would be content to live in the awesome light and the glorious provision of the sacrifice of Jesus. And Lord, for that empty heart, for that lonely heart, for that broken heart, for that guilty heart, Lord, I pray that they would appropriate the grace and the mercy, the forgiveness and the hope that's in David's son. That if they'll cry out to you, that if they'll ask Jesus to forgive them and to come into their life and to walk with them and be with them, that you'll honor that prayer. They'll experience hope and love and grace and mercy in a future. In Jesus' name, amen.